Father, you have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that has not been rescinded. Knowing that the Holy Spirit works in tandem with your word, we pray that there would be a divine fusion of truth and power, light and heat. We want to be affected by this word. Our goal is not simply to hear a tale told. We need to encounter the storyteller. Our soul longs for more than a clever speaker. We need to experience more than a witty topic. Father, I stand before your people. Some are newly converted and need milk. Others are walking deeply with you and need meat. Would you feed the lambs and the sheep? The spiritual newborns and the spiritual giants. Help this to be another Sunday in which we leave convinced that our deepest need is met with the systematic verse-by-verse preaching of your word. Make the gospel clear and our need of it clear. Give us such deadness to this world to reject the constant wooing. Let us never slumber, never lose our assurance, and never fail to wear armor when passing through enemy land. After today, help us to have a greater understanding of the wiles of the world and the deception of the devil. May we leave with weapons to encounter them, to counter them, an assurance that Jesus has conquered them. Father, it's through the beautiful work of Christ we make this petition. Amen. John, the human author of Revelation, is in prison stripes. He's a convict. He's not located in a small county jail. He's exiled to a penal settlement. It's just off the coast from where these seven churches to whom the book is addressed is located. John is dressed in stripes, confined on first century Alcatraz, forced to work a rock quarry. This isn't picking up trash on the side of the road. Nor was it railroad tracks and a a chain gang. This was brutal and sometimes deadly labor. No cable TV, no three square meals a day. Some historians say the prisoners would have been on their own for food. Scavenge the island. The island was formed by volcanic eruptions. So it was, it was all rock. The whole scene is a, is a jailhouse rock. But not the one Elvis sang about. While John is clothed in stripes, he receives a vision from God, and he's told to write it down. He does. We've been walking verse by verse through this vision for the last 17 weeks. We continue today with chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had had the, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Immediately in this vision, we are introduced to the prostitute of Babylon. Those of you visiting with us are like, "Mm okay, you got my attention. I didn't know churches talked about this. Well, friends, let me assure you, I didn't craft this vision. God did. He gave the vision. I'll give you a sermon on the vision. You will hear the word prostitute more in the next 55 minutes than you likely have in the the last five years. Now, some of you, upon hearing the title of this sermon, some of you parents with young children are thinking, this is going to be an interesting ride home. (laughs) Hey, Mom, what's a prostitute? There are age-appropriate answers for that question. I gathered some ideas from our elders and their wives. To a six-year-old, you might say, God created a special way 
for a married man and woman to show love to each other with their bodies. Prostitution is doing things you're supposed to do in marriage, but doing it outside of marriage for money. That's what you say to a six-year-old. To a nine-year-old, you might say, it's a sinful person who sells their body to get money. A stranger pays them to have sex outside of marriage. To a 12-year-old, you might say, it's an image bearer who gets money for letting another adulterer defile their body. You might go further into detail to explain to this age group the act of sex, but show that they are doing it without love and without the safety of marriage. Kyle, I'm not sure I want my child to know what a prostitute is. Parents, let, let me just say this. God used the term, not me. When this letter was first read, it was read to seven local churches with six, nine, and 12-year-olds in the audience. I don't think the pastor used a replacement word when reading it to the church at Ephesus or the church at Sardis. I don't believe they edited it on the fly. I think they gave the adults and the children the unedited word of God. And maybe it caused for an awkward conversation on the chariot ride home. Someone is going to introduce your children to a prostitute. Either through a song, a YouTube channel, or a picture on a student's phone in the school bathroom. Who do you want to define prostitute to them? An eight-year-old holding a phone in the bathroom or a pastor holding a Bible in a pulpit. Let their first exposure be from the book that God wrote, not a video that Satan edited. One of our former elders, Vance Viscusi, he is now a headmaster of a Christian school in Missouri, said to me, my kids learn new words when they listen to you preach. <laughs> I asked him, am I too blunt? Do I need to tone it down? He said, no. I want them to hear these words from their pastor with an open Bible in front of him. So they have a biblical grid and a biblical worldview to process the information. That's exactly how I want to introduce these topics to my children. Truth of the matter is, all these parents and these seven local churches in the Roman Empire past prostitutes on the streets on the way to corporate worship. Seneca, a Roman philosopher who lived in this day, called the Roman Empire a filthy sewer. Prostitutes everywhere. Tacitus, a Roman historian and politician, alive at the time of this writing, described the area this way, and I quote, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world congregate, and find a home. Here's how we're going to go at this text. Three movements. The prostitute. The metaphor. The take-homes. The prostitute. The metaphor. The take-homes. Let's read verse 1 again. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. And I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, where is she, who is seated on many waters. John sees one of the seven angels who poured out one of the seven bowls of God's wrath. And this angel approaches him and says, I'm going to take you on a tour. Which angel functioned as John's tour guide? Was it the angel who poured out the first bowl? Or the angel who poured out the fourth bowl? Or possibly the one who poured out the seventh bowl? We aren't told. So we shouldn't bother speculating. He leads John to a place, a pool, a, a body of water. And on it sits the prostitute. Is she on a pool float? A pink flamingo pool float? Is she on a pontoon boat? Tanning? We are not told yet why she is on the water or how she is on the water. We know that John is on an island surrounded by water, so maybe he sees her somewhere on the Aegean Sea off the coast of modern-day Turkey. 
The next few verses tell us a lot. We find out about her clientele, her clothing, her cosmetics, and her convertible. Her clientele is a black book of who's who. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. When her phone rings, it's kings on the other line. Dictators, tribal chieftains, presidents, prime ministers, the rich, the famous, the politically connected, the power players. But that's not the only people who call on her. The text says, the dwellers of the earth. Beloved, have we seen that phrase before? Earth dwellers, used over a dozen times in the book to describe non-Christians. Whether it's the rich and famous or the average and ordinary, they are drunk on her wine. They can't get her off of their minds. They can't stop thinking about her. She has them wrapped around her finger. They are infatuated. They are intoxicated by her. They are drunk on her beauty. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Her clientele, now her clothing. She is dressed to impress. She adorns her body with purple and scarlet. Purple, the most expensive clothing in the first century, and scarlet, red, the most eye-catching clothing, clothing in the first century. She isn't clothed like one might think, seeing a prostitute in the red light district. She's wearing a beautiful evening gown. It's expensive. It's royal. She's dressed like a queen. She's begoldened with gold. And around her neck hangs priceless pearls. Hanging from her wrist and her ears are sparkling jewelry. She's alluring. She's seductive. She owns the room and captures the eyes of every man. She's beautiful on the outside. But the text reveals to us she's not beautiful on the inside. A gaudy body and a filthy heart. We get a little hint here to how God views her actions. Abominable, impure, sexually immoral, she captures with her seductive spell of perfumes, silks, and flatteries. Verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Her clientele, her clothing, now her cosmetics. When I talk about cosmetics, I'm talking about how she adorns her face. She doesn't wear makeup on her face. She's tattooed her face. Now, now you're like, hold up, wait a minute. A face tattoo? How is she in business with a face tattoo? And that's a lot of words to tattoo on your face. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations, even if you do eight-point font, how do you get all of that on one forehead? She must have a big old forehead, maybe a five-head. It'll land a plane on it. Church, it's time for you to realize that this is not a literal prostitute. Everything John is seeing is literal. Everything John is seeing is literal, but it holds symbolic meaning. The vision is rooted in Old Testament symbolism. Seven other references in the book of Revelation mention markings on the forehead. It's a minor theme in Revelation. You know her by her markings. And her markings say she is not only a prostitute, but the mother of all prostitutes. In this culture, established prostitutes trained young girls to become prostitutes by outfitting them with the necessary clothing, and makeup and instructing in ways of providing pleasure. She doesn't just work in the red light district. She's recruited all the women 
working the red light district. She's not content with her own evil vice. She spawns her harlotry and abominable practices throughout the world. Her clientele, her clothing, her cosmetics, now her cup. She's holding a glass, a red lipstick stained glass. It's not a surprise to see this. Prostitutes were known for their love of wine. However, her choice of drink, not wine. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. In her glass, there's red liquid, but it's not wine. It's blood, particularly the blood of the saints. She's drinking the blood of Christians, those who have been killed. Now let's take a step back and, and let's just fast forward for a moment. John will somehow be released from his island penal settlement. He crosses the Aegean Sea to visit these seven churches and give each of them this letter. History records that he was so old and broken down they carried him from church to church. He read the letter in one sitting to each congregation. Um, imagine the church at Pergamum. Imagine what they thought as John read this portion, chapter 17, she drinks the blood of saints. Antipas, a faithful member of their church, had been killed for following Christ. Chapter 2 told us that. The original hearers in this church are thinking, she's drinking Antipas's blood. Were they thinking the prostitutes they passed on the street on the way into corporate worship were drinking his blood? No, they knew this was a symbol of something greater. This woman is drunk on the blood of martyrs. She's staggering around, stumbling, laughing, slurring her words. It's nothing quite like witnessing the behavior of a drunk woman. And that's what you're viewing in the text. She keeps guzzling more and more. She's bloodthirsty. She's intoxicated with the fanatical zeal to exterminate Christians. She's enjoyed the process of putting out hits and watching them follow through. She's complicit in the murder of Christians. She didn't like these seven churches. In fact, she plotted against them. Let the reader beware. She's still plotting and she's still drinking. It turns out she's dressed to kill, literally. It's Dennis Johnson who said, she may be seductive in appearance, but repulsive in reality. Don't look at her body. Look at her cup. Now it's here I would like to pause and mention how some scholars interpret verse 6. John is in prison. He hasn't seen a woman in a long time. He's on an island filled with dirty, stinky men. In this vision, he sees this beautiful woman and some scholars contest he's attracted to her. And if he's attracted to her, how much more will you be attracted to her? The angel says, uh, let me show you this woman, John. And after he says, John, John, stop staring. Why are you marveling? Boy, get your eyes back over here. That's a very common interpretation from New Testament scholars and from famous preachers, from G.K. Bill to Matt Chandler. I do not hold to that. The main reason is because the word here marveled, it's not a sexual word. Whenever it's used, it's, it's never used with lust behind it. There is surprise behind it. John sees this woman and is surprised. He rubs his eyes. Am I really seeing this? Does she really exist? Is this really her work? Is this really what is happening from God's point of view? Yes. Her clientele, her clothing, her cosmetics, her cup, finally, her convertible. We've seen what she's wearing, but what is she driving? Well, John relays to us in verse 3. And he, that's the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads, 
and ten horns. She's riding a beast. She's not riding in a chariot. It's not enclosed. There's nothing above her head but the sky. It's a convertible beast. It's like, Kyle, that's a real stretch. I know it is, okay? But I, had, I was going with C's that all make the K sound, and convertible was the only one. So my fundamentalist days are coming back. <laughs> this beast has seven heads and ten horns. He's perfectly grotesque, completely horrible. God has introduced John and us to the prostitute. Now, he will unveil the metaphor. The metaphor. Verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. That's the first mystery, church. The mystery of the woman and of the beast. That's the second mystery. With seven heads and ten horns that carries her. You, you, could, you could break down the text in this format. The entire chapter. Verses 1 through 6. The angel gives the tour. Verses 7 through 18. The angel interprets the tour. He's going to reveal the prostitute as a metaphor. This whole scene is a symbol of something going on right now. Let's answer two questions. Or as the verse calls them, mysteries. Mystery number one, who is the prostitute? Mystery number two, who is the beast? Well, verse five told us the prostitute was Babylon. Babylon the prostitute. Does this mean she is literally Babylon? I don't think so, beloved. She doesn't live in modern-day Iraq, historical Babylon, 50 miles from Baghdad. With all that is in me, I'm convinced the first readers believed they were living in modern-day Babylon. The seven churches saw the prostitute in all her allurements every day of the week. They lived in the red-light district. She's not confined to the last days. She's walking in their day. Two mysteries. First, who is the prostitute? Second, who is the beast? Who is the beast? Now, we're going to dive deep for a moment, but we will come back up for air. I want you to stay with me. There is a, a symbiosis between the beast and the prostitute. The fact that she's riding him points to her allegiance and alliance with him. She's wearing scarlet, and this is a scarlet beast. She dresses like him. He has seven heads and ten horns. Is this the first time in Revelation, in our Revelation study, that we've come across a beast with seven heads and ten horns? No. We've seen this beast before. In chapter 13, Satan, the great red dragon, called to himself two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. We called the three the unholy trinity. The first beast is sometimes called the Antichrist. The second beast is sometimes called the false prophet. I don't call either one of them that. I contest it. It is better to understand them this way. The first beast is broadly representative of political power. The second beast was broadly representative of religious power. The first beast was anti-Christian government. The second beast was anti-Christian religion. Both attack Christ and his church. In chapter 13, the first beast, the anti-Christian government, had seven heads and ten horns. It's the same beast. He's making another appearance in chapter 17. It's the beast of anti-Christian government. Verse 8, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction... And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This beast brings persecution that was and is and will go away for a while and come back. Governmental opposition to God will always come back around. Tom Schreiner, I think, is the strongest New Testament scholar in our day in the, in the English-speaking world. 
Tom Schreiner says, there are periods of flourishing and periods of decline. What John says about the beast is also true of history generally. There are periods of history when totalitarian rule seems a thing of the past. But history keeps rolling around again. And totalitarian power returns with all its ferocity and cruelty. End quote. So the beast is broadly representing governmental opposition to Christianity. Uh, the, the, the readers would have thought the beast, no doubt in my mind, the readers would have thought the beast was their own government. Rome, the Roman Empire. The prostitute was walking the streets of Rome and the beast was Rome. Well, what about the seven heads? The beast had seven heads. Chapter 13 said the beast had seven heads but said nothing more of them. Here in chapter 17, the seven heads are defined for us. Verse 9, John says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Yes, it does, John. Yes, it does. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. I think this is pointing to the topography of Rome. Rome was situated between seven mountains. Uh, there was even an annual festival called the Festival of Seven Mountains. The first readers were thinking Rome, the same government that exiled John to Patmos, that put him in prison stripes, the same government that, that put Jesus to death. I have a commentary on Revelation compiling the thoughts of all the ancients, and they all thought it was Rome. She's enthroned on Rome, riding on Rome. Literally, it's Rome. Principally, it's every anti-Christian government. Rome is the most recent example of this beast. Rome was a striking embodiment of this beast, but this beast extends beyond the immediate setting in history. Rome is the newest version of anti-Christian government, but they will not be the last, and the beast represents them all. The seven heads are seven mountains. Let's say that together. The seven heads are seven mountains. Let's try that again. The seven heads are seven mountains. Verse 10. They, the seven heads, are also seven what? Kings? Stop. I thought the seven heads were seven mountains. Now you're saying the seven heads are seven kings. John, why do you always do this to us? Are you messing with us? How can one image mean two different things? John gives the seven churches two interpretations for the seven heads. The seven heads are the seven mountains, and they are the seven kings. Do you think John messed up? Maybe the island heat was getting to him? No. There is no mistake here. The seven heads represent both the seven mountains and the seven kings. Notice verse 10. They, that's the seven heads, are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and one has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Are these kings in the past? Are these kings in the distant future? Theologians have and will debate this till forever. It's generated significant speculation among scholars. I probably spent too much time reading the different views on the identity of these kings. No view fits perfectly without admitting certain kings in a line or speculating about future kings. And honestly, it all just seems so artificial to me. You can try to identify the kings if you want. But I think it speaks of seven kings because... If you haven't noticed, there are a lot of sevens in the book. There are 45 sevens in Revelation. Perhaps it's better and more consistent with the book to take this as symbolic. Verse 12. And the ten horns, so we're leaving the seven heads, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings that have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So the seven heads are seven kings. Now the ten horns are ten kings. We've got 17 kings in total now. We need to see the big picture, church. There is a beast representing anti-Christian government. 
And this beast has seven heads and ten horns. They're all kings. There's a big beast and a lot of kings on his head. Their identities are inconsequential. I take the broader view. I think the seven heads and the ten horns are both symbolic. We've seen seven and ten all throughout the book of Revelation. This is symbolic of the whole world, not ten specific kings. Verse 13. These, that's the horns, are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Satan hates Christianity and always tries to destroy it. Go to war with it. The world hates the lamb and will eventually go to war with the lamb. They will also go to war against those who follow the lamb. The point is... The beast's reign holds sway over the entire world, the complete world. The singular purpose of this vision is to declare there's big opposition toward God. There are a lot of kings on the beast, 17, maybe 18. But Jesus defeats them all. How? What's the verse say? Because he is the king of kings. Now let's come back up for air. Let's resurface. You can breathe out. We made it through the explanation of the beast. Two mysteries, the prostitute and the beast. Verse 5 revisits the prostitute. Excuse me, verse 15 revisits the prostitute. It reads, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. We are now told why the prostitute was first seen on the water. The water was symbolic of all nations. She has some from every tongue hitting up her phone. Water apparently was a formula for universality. The prostitute is universal. The beast is universal. Verse 17 reveals to us that the prostitute was having problems with her ride. Convertibles always cause you problems, and this one is no different. The prostitute and the beast had an alliance and allegiance with one another, but it will not last. Verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Whoa. This just turned very law and order, very sadistic, very gory. The wild beast with his seven heads and ten horns turn on the prostitute. They, they, they buck her off and rip her body to pieces and leave her naked on the ground. Then they lit a match and watched her burn. What a pleasant bedtime story. Here's the point. Evil ultimately implodes on itself. Evil is inherently self-destructive. Wickedness possesses the seed form of its own destruction. Satan rises up against Satan. The beast and the woman turning on each other? That's evil and chaos. Evil cannot preserve order. Evil carries within itself, by God's design, the seeds of its own destruction so that it unravels from within. Evil finally turns in on itself and implodes, eating its own flesh, burning its own people. The prostitute, the metaphor, now the take-homes. Take home number one. God is steering history to his own purposes and directing the outcome of everything. God is steering history to his own purposes and directing the outcome of everything. We see the crumbling and eroding of Satan's kingdom in chapter 17. Why did the beast attack the prostitute? 
Well, there's a mysterious statement of God's sovereignty found in a verse that I did not read to you. It's verse 17, and it reads, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. The beast attacked because God put it in his heart. What they are doing with the ripping and shredding is precisely what God wants. Turns out it was God who brought about the slaughter of the prostitute. God rules over evil. The powers of evil serve the purposes of God. And church, it is very important to me. It is very important for me to know that you understand that the main purpose of Revelation is not to give you a roadmap for the future. Its main purpose is to give you a doctrine that puts steel in your spine. God is steering history to his own purposes and directing the outcome of everything. Now, that's take-home number one. Take-home number two, the, the next take-home, is drawn from the beginning of the chapter. That's where I'm drawing this application. From the beginning of the chapter, when the prostitute is alive and alluring. Take-home number two is this. You are living in a spiritual red-light district. You are living in a spiritual red-light district. There are a lot of good brothers who love the Lord who disagree with me on this. When they get to heaven, they will agree with me on this, but no, I'm just kidding. If I'm wrong, I will gladly repent. There are a lot of good brothers who disagree with me on this, but I, I do not believe John is writing about a future prostitute. I think he's writing about a current one. She's alive and well now. You can smell a perfume. You're tempted to do a double take at her now. She doesn't live in Babylon. She lives in Clarksville and Hopkinsville and Oak Grove. She resides at Fort Campbell. She walks the streets among us. She's on your radio. She's on your TV. She controls most Instagram accounts and TikTok videos. Her soft-scented lips breathlessly whisper in your ear, come on over here for pleasure. This is what you need. This will make you happy. No one will ever know. Besides, everyone's doing it. Look at all the kings and presidents and prime ministers I have. You're accepted over here. No one will hate you over here. Church, sin is always popular and will always be popular. There's not coming a day when it's not going to be popular. Babylon in the scriptures is simply the center of wickedness that allures and, and tempts. It, it, it's, it's seductive and, and it calls out to you promising pleasure. One pastor put it this way and I quote, our greatest threat is not persecution from the world but seduction by the world. Our greatest threat is not persecution from the world but seduction by the world. It is Satan's most efficient weapon. When you compromise with the gods of this world, this is what you're doing. Prostitution. The world is seductive. It will attract you. The prostitute dresses in a way to make your eye wander. The world is after your eye, attempting to draw it away from Christ. John is in prison because he refused to be with the prostitute of Babylon. She entices you away from the worship of God. So let me ask you, dear friend, is this the way you think of the world? The world is a prostitute? By the grace of God, may you finally see her for who she is. Her seduction is lethal. She's riding on that beast saying to you, follow me. This is the way to life. This is the way to happiness. I'll make sure your life is good. But it is a bait and switch built on an illusion. She overpromises and underdelivers. 
She's luring you to destruction. See the slide. See your slide. You're watching things now you would have never watched a year ago. She's calling you over. That relationship at work is too close. And you know it. Well, she needs help. Is that what the prostitute is whispering to you to get you to go over? You better start realizing you are living in the red light district. And the Babylonian prostitute beckons you from every corner. Wait up. It'll never happen to me, Kyle. <laughs> Greater men than you have fallen. Greater men than you have visited her. Let your guard down. See how close you can get to her without actually sinning. Now one day, you'll be a trophy on her shelf. A name in her black book. Another, did you hear about Jeff? Story. My job as a preacher of the gospel is to warn you to flee from her. She offers empty promises. She offers cheap substitutes. Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy you. Don't run to the prostitute. Run to the promised one. And let us not fall into this error. The error that says the prostitute of Babylon only beckons men. No, no, my friend. She's after women as well. Well, this text conversation with my old flame is nothing. It's innocent. It's, it's just friendship. I mean, sure, yeah, sure, sure. He compliments me on my looks and, and gives me a shoulder to cry on, but, but nothing will ever happen. Who is telling you that? It is not the Holy Spirit. It is the prostitute whispering that. The word prostitute is found four times in this chapter. It's the word porne. It's only found 12 times in the entire Bible. Five of those are in the book of Revelation. Four, of course, in this chapter. Porne is where we get our word pornography. Which leads us to our third take home. The temptation for men is to see pornography. And the temptation for women is to be pornography. To be adored and looked at to turn heads. Gentlemen, 16% of U.S. men have paid for a prostitute. But that's not the only thing we're talking about. Pornography is a modern form of prostitution. And the percentage there is much higher. OnlyFans. OnlyFans is another form of prostitution. Pay per pleasure. Ladies, resist the tendency to fight aging and choose to rejoice in aging. Aging is not a negative process. Wrinkles and skin not being as tight as it used to be is part of the aging process. Don't fall prey to the cult of beauty because she demands endless efforts and sinful compromises. You don't need to turn heads and be adored by every man that walks by. You're beautiful because God says you're beautiful. You're adored by Him. And when you have His eyes, you need no others. Now, to circle back around to the beginning of the sermon, children hearing this word prostitution for the first time, there are a couple of books that I would recommend to you. I'm going to rattle them off here. If you need me to repeat after the service, that's fine, or any of the pastors. The, the first is titled, Mom, Dad, What's Sex? It's by Jessica Thompson and Joel Fitzpatrick. Mom, Dad, What's Sex? Thompson and Phil, Phil Fitzpatrick. The second book is titled, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Porn Proofing Today's Young Kids. 
Good pictures, bad pictures, porn proofing today's young kids. That's by Jensen and, and Pointer. Let's uh, jump here to take home number four. I've got five of them. Take home number four. There are two women juxtaposed in Revelation. Christ woman and Satan's woman. The bride of Christ and the prostitute of Babylon. We've got whole chapters coming up on the bride of Christ. You need to look at the book of Revelation as a whole. There are two women juxtaposed in Revelation. Christ woman and Satan's woman. The bride of Christ and the prostitute of Babylon. The prostitute is dressed in purple and scarlet. The bride is dressed in white. The prostitute focuses on outward beauty. The bride focuses on inward beauty. The prostitute drinks a cup filled with the blood of saints. The bride drinks the cup of the New Testament. The prostitute is destined for hell. The bride is destined for heaven. The prostitute is drunk and seductive. The bride is sober and chaste. The prostitute receives wrath. The bride receives mercy. Every day of your life you will make this decision. Will I spend my time with the pure bride of Christ or will I spend my time with the foul whore of Babylon? You are presented in the book with two women. Make the choice. Take home number five, and we'll end with this one. I hear you packing up already. It's, good. it's a long one, so no need to pack up. Take home number five. No action done with the prostitute is beyond the saving hand of God. Let me repeat that. No action done with the prostitute is beyond the saving hand of God. Have you visited the red light district? Have you, like it says in Isaiah committed adultery under every tree? Maybe you awakened this morning from a drunken stupor in that district and you came here and, and you really think you're beyond the reach of grace. You sinned horribly and, and you have wanted to get up and leave multiple times during the sermon. Friend, I've got good news for you. There is no sin committed with a prostitute that is beyond the forgiveness of God. In fact, salvation doesn't come by avoiding the prostitute. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Remember I told you there were 12 mentions of this word prostitute or in the Greek porne. One of the 12 mentions of porne in the scripture is in the parable of the prodigal son. He spent all his days with porne, prostitutes. Yet when he came back home, his father was waiting there with open arms. Some of you have visited the red light district. Some of you have worked in the red light district. And you're wondering if salvation is out of reach. If there's any hope of salvation for the prostitute. See, you, you know the movie Pretty Woman is a myth. Men go to prostitutes to use them, not love them. And you're probably like, the last thing I need is to be saved by a man. But you haven't met the God men. You haven't met Jesus. See, there's a story in Luke 7 where, where a prostitute went up to Jesus. And a lot of religious folk around him told the prostitute, get away! Get away from Jesus. And Jesus rebuked all of them. And he told the prostitute, come. He spoke to her. He knew all her sins. Yet he treated her with respect. Like a woman should be treated. Then in that moment, he gave a call to the call girl. Not a call that would put him in the black book but a call to salvation. She's received a lot of calls, but no call quite like that call. She left saved, redeemed, clean, purified, and you can too. Run to Jesus.
with nothing in your hands, simply to his cross you cling. There are more mentions of prostitutes getting saved in the Bible than Pharisees. Jesus actually said to Pharisees, publicans and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus delights in making trophies of grace with red light Rahab's. See, the book of Hosea presents all God's people as prostitutes. But there is one who pursues and pursues and pursues the prostitute no matter what acts she commits. He just keeps going after her and after her with love and forgiveness. Hey, hey Pharisee, rule keeper, people pleaser, if you are saved today, it's because you kept going to the red light district and Jesus kept forgiving you and calling you to himself. Every Sunday, and you don't like this, and I know because the amen stopped. Every Sunday, we gather as a bunch of former prostitutes and we hear from God's word as he matures us and that, and that former lifestyle begins to lose its charm and seduction, its lure. And we begin to see Jesus as most beautiful. Now, chapter 17 is not mainly about sexual sin. Chapter 17 is not mainly about sexual sin. But sexual sin is so serious because when the Bible wants to shock you, it puts compromise with the world in the category of sexual sin. Let's stand. Father, you have sp spread a banquet and we have feasted. We leave having been fed spiritually, having met with you in your book, having been satisfied with the bread of life. You have given some of your people milk. You have given some of your people meat. But you have fed all of your people. And Father, that's all we ask each time we gather that you would feed us.